Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 well welcome back as we head into hour two some follow-up thoughts from yesterday we we spent some time yesterday on the theme of children and how and what they learn and should learn we did so in response to an attack on the conservative movement or the parents rights movement by the new york times which seemed to think it was Backward to try and keep highly sexualized themed books out of the curriculum of preschools, kindergarten and elementary schools so that we, we conservatives are the societal problem. What we in the left call progressivism is really, though, the opposite of progress. In fact, I think we should call the progressive movement the regressive movement, movement of regressivism. They, after all, seem to want us to unlearn an awful lot that it took centuries of civilization to, well, teach and civilize. They seem to want us to go back to zero in everything we know about family, family formation, about health, about child rearing, about general welfare. And yeah, really, especially nurturing, protecting and training of our youth. Think for a moment about three things. One, the war on boys. Two, the value of children's education and entertainment. And three, what the culture used to know, and not that long ago. Let's start in reverse. In 1997, Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers, was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. You'd recognize almost everyone in the audience if you go and look at it on, on YouTube or whatever. Many of them are obviously older now, but you still see them, many of them, at the Academy Awards and all the awards shows today. And at that 1997 ceremony, the audience was mostly in tears, remembering how much they loved or missed Mr. Rogers' neighborhood from when they were growing up. If Mr. Rogers stood for anything, it was for giving children calm and safe spaces in a world of tumult and challenge and giving them lessons on restraint of emotion run riot or at a minimum knee-jerk and disinhibitive reactions to things. The 1997 affair was the speech where Mr. Rogers said the following, and it got unanimous standing ovational applause. He said, quote, fame is a four-letter word, and like tape or Zoom or face or pain or life or love, what ultimately matters is what we do with it. I feel that those of us in television, he said, are chosen to be servants. Doesn't matter what our particular job, we are chosen to help meet the deeper needs of those who watch and listen day and night. The conductor of the orchestra at the Hollywood Bowl grew up in a family that had little interest in music, but he often tells people he found his early inspiration from the fine musicians on television. Last month, a 13-year-old boy abducted an 8-year-old girl, and when people asked him why, he said he learned about it on TV. Something different to try, he said. Life's cheap. What does it matter? Mr. Rogers went on. Well, life isn't cheap. It's the greatest mystery of any millennium, and television, television needs to do all it can to broadcast that, to show and tell what the good in life is all about. But how do we make goodness attractive? 
by doing whatever we can to bring courage to those whose lives move near our own, by treating our neighbor at least as well as we treat ourselves, and allowing that to inform everything that we produce, close quote. This would be a year where there was a great deal of talking and writing and testifying about violence and sexuality in Hollywood and in music, especially rap music, 1997. Civil rights activists, uh, Joe Lieberman, William Bennett, Wynton Marcellus, others were going on and on about this. What was being marketed and sold to kids for their entertainment was, to put it no higher, troubling. Again, recall what Mr. Rogers said, and when he said it, he got unanimous applause and an ovation. And until Barack Obama and since John F. Kennedy, I don't think there was a president more beloved by or wrapped up in constituencies from what we generally call Hollywood than Bill Clinton. Indeed, many of the old FOBs, if you remember that term, term, friends of Bill, many of them were Hollywood producers and directors and, yes, actors. The year before that, 1996, In his State of the Union speech, President Clinton said the following, quote, All strong families begin with taking more responsibility for their children. I have heard Mrs. Gore say that it's hard to be a parent today, but it's even harder to be a child. So all of us, not just as parents, but all of us in our other roles, our media, our schools, our teachers, our communities, our churches and synagogues, our businesses, our governments, all of us have a responsibility to help our children to make it and to make the most of their lives and their God-given capacities. To the media, I say you should create movies and CDs and television shows you'd want your own children and grandchildren to enjoy. I call on Congress to pass the requirement for a V-chip in television sets so that parents can screen out programs they believe are inappropriate for their children. When parents control what their young children see, that is not censorship. That is enabling parents to assume more personal responsibility for their children's upbringing, and I urge them to do it, close quote. Odd, when Bill Clinton supported parents directing the upbringing of their kids over and against other institutions, that was the popular thing. And to repeat, if the New York Times is listening, not censorship or book banning, as we discussed yesterday. Which turns me for a moment to how children do learn things. And as many of you know, I'm fascinated by how they learn via literature, stories, and fairy and folk tales. I was thinking about this as I see more and more on social media and in various columns that claim telling children about the story or myth, however you want to put it, about Santa Claus is now unhealthy, even dangerous. Have you noticed that? It's a new thing this year. The modern landmark work on teaching children tales was done by psychiatrist Bruno Bettelheim in his 1976 book, The Uses of Enchantment. Here's what he wrote, quote, An understanding of the meaning of life is not suddenly acquired at the age of chronological maturity or at any particular age. This achievement is the result of a long development. Wisdom is built up small step by small step. Unfortunately, Too many parents want their children's minds to function as their own do, as if a child's understanding of himself and the world did not have to develop as slowly as his body does. The child must therefore be helped to bring order into the turmoil of his feelings. He needs a moral education that subtly, by implication only, conveys to him the advantages of moral behavior through that which seems tangibly right 
and therefore has meaning for him. Dr. Bettelheim would go on to write, quote, For a story to truly hold the child's attention, it must entertain him and arouse his curiosity. But to enrich his life, it must stimulate his imagination, help him to develop his intellect and to clarify his emotions, be attuned to his anxieties and aspirations, give full recognition to his difficulties, while at the same time suggesting solutions to the problems which perturb him. In short, it must at one and the same time relate to all aspects of his personality, and this without ever belittling, but on the contrary, giving full credence to the seriousness of the child's predicaments while simultaneously promoting confidence in himself and in his future. In all these and many other respects of the entirety of children's literature, with rare exceptions, nothing can be as enriching and satisfying to child and adult alike as the folk fairy tale. True, on an overt level, fairy tales teach little about the specific conditions of life in modern mass society. These tales were created long before any of that came into being. But more can be learned from them about the inner problems of human beings and of the right solutions to their predicaments in any society than from any other type of story within a child's comprehension. Since the child at every moment of his life is exposed to the society in which he lives, he will certainly learn to cope with its conditions, provided his inner resources permit him to do so. The point of good children's stories is to help the child cope later in life as he develops in life. Bettelheim concluded this way, Unlike many modern stories for children, fairy tales present evil as being no less omnipresent than virtue. It is this duality that poses the moral problem and requires the struggle to solve it, close quote. Bettelheim goes on to point out something interesting for children. Characters, unlike adults in real life, characters are not good and bad. They are good or bad because polarization dominates a child's mind and requires such instruction for recognizing those very characteristics of life when they do unfold and which to choose which way to go. You know this from an even older source. The wisest of all men, we are told, said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When Bettelheim wrote what he wrote, I froze on that word polarization. Now think about what we used to call the war against boys or toxic masculinity from those waging that war. You don't hear that phrase anymore, probably because it's over, and the other side won. Children's therapist Erica Commissar put it this way in the Wall Street Journal a while ago. She wrote, In my practice as a psychotherapist, I've seen an increase of depression in young men who feel emasculated in a society that is hostile to masculinity. New guidelines from the American Psychological Association define traditional traditional masculinity as a pathological state, and it's only likely to make matters worse. She wrote, true, over the past half century, ideas about femininity, femininity, femininity and masculinity have evolved, sometimes for the better. But the APA guidelines demonize masculinity rather than embrace its positive aspects. In a press release, the APA asserts flatly that, quote, traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression is on the whole harmful, close quote. The APA claims that masculinity is to blame for the oppression and abuse of women. The report encourages clinicians to evaluate evaluate masculinity as an evil to be tamed, 
rather than a force to be integrated. Think about that. It's not toxic masculinity that needs to be tamed, just masculinity. We can go on and on how boys are shamed for being boys. We've done it before. I suppose you see some of this in classes that shame whites for being white. But you can't change your skin color. And until yesterday, you could not change your being a boy. And for added irony, think about Snow White and other great Disney productions that worked their magic in sync with what Dr. Bettelheim was teaching that children needed. Dr. Christina Hoff Summers put it this way a while back, quote, boys do not need to be rescued from their masculinity, but they are not getting the help they need. In the climate of disapproval in which boys now exist, they need support. Everyone knew this. All literature knew this. All philosophy knew this. Bill Clinton and Fred Rogers were celebrated not just by the country, but by entertainment moguls who knew this. Today, today an entirely new effort has been underway. Not a throwing in of the towel, a burning of it, and the boxing ring it's metaphorically thrown into. Do we think it's an accident that we went from toxic masculinity to, when researchers started publishing on this about six, seven years ago, the trend was for boys now just wanting to become girls? Here's my conclusion. You can confuse children or you can educate them in the mind and in the morals. Teddy Roosevelt once put it that to educate a man in the mind and not the morals is to educate a menace to society. You can surrender to children's feelings and tantrums and anxieties. You can even give them anxieties as we have throughout COVID. You can surrender to them or you can nurture and nurse and direct the child's emotions. And while the New York Times thinks it's just fine the moment a four or five-year-old wants to change their sex because they feel uncomfortable or are taught to feel uncomfortable... The wiser thinking is that is it is imperative that children experience a little discomfort. Doctors Heather Hang and Brett Weinstein write that it is a mistake to capitulate to children's transient feelings and tantrums, to give in to every immediate whim and desire. There used to be a word for that capitulation or surrender. Spoil. Children are perfectly designed to acquire and want to acquire the skill set that they need to be adults with. We moderns have disrupted this to a remarkable degree. Children will self-program if we let them, and if we let them, we will yield children in adult bodies. That is what we have now, and why, to go back to Bettelheim, so many parents want their children's minds to function as their own do, which is why we also have boys and girls making decisions to be in girls' and boys' bodies, the bodies they choose. I mentioned surrender a moment ago. In discussing the war against children, the progressive education movement began in earnest in the 1940s and 1950s. Hannah Arendt put it that there are certain forms of surrender adults must not declare in the presence of children. Well, the white flag is flying pretty high right now, and we're going to need a metaphysical Iwo Jima hoisting of a better flag rather quickly if we plan to recapture both adulthood childhood, and everything we once esteemed based on the things we used to know. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. 
If you are concerned with stock market volatility, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10 and a quarter percent. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y then refy.com or you can give them a call at 888-YREFI34. That's 888-YREFI34. Great guys based here locally. You can meet with them, talk to them on the phone. Uh, you won't get a sales pitch. They just are delighted to talk about what it is that they do and letting it speak for itself. Well, all we can do is speculate about this one. This is interesting. Uh, Donald Trump shared a video today. Did you guys see it? Depicting himself as a superhero on his uh, social media platform, Truth Social, in which he said tomorrow he will be delivering a major announcement uh, the announcement, according to uh, Yahoo News, is set to be made Thursday, 15th of December. That's tomorrow. Uh, in the video, he says America needs a superhero. And it has a T on his chest and a beam of lights streaming from his eyes. I guess that's that's kind of like that thing Joe Biden was doing with the, what was I forget the name of it, Bad Joe or whatever they called him. Uh, Evil Brandon, bad Brandon, whatever it was, silliness. What was it? Dark Brandon, yeah, dark Brandon. You don't hear much. Uh, you don't hear much about uh, calling Joe Biden Brandon anymore, do you? I don't know. Probably. I wonder if he even ever knew what it meant. I even. I wonder if he even ever knew that there was the dark Brandon thing going on and taking place. I. I just have no idea. Interesting to speculate on what uh, Donald Trump will announce tomorrow. There's a limited number of things he could announce that would qualify as a major announcement. Uh, Two things that one would speculate on, perhaps a very well-known campaign manager for his re-election campaign, although I think he already has one, but maybe maybe a list or a a team of supporters that will will be names that are are quite well-known, or or maybe a VP candidate he plans to run with. that would be unusual, but not unprecedented. Um, Reagan, usually you don't name your vice presidential candidate until the convention. Um, Reagan did it in 1976. You remember that, David, Jeremy? Do you remember who he named? He Ronald Reagan, when he challenged Jerry Ford, he... Yeah, you... Yes... <laughs> Associate producer David gets the hat tip on that one. Yeah, he chose uh, Senator Richard Schweikert of uh, Pennsylvania. No relation to David, I don't think. Yeah, no, it's spelled differently. Schweikert, not Schweikert. Um, he announced him in 76 when he took on Jerry Ford uh, kind of as a moderate to balance out the perception of Reagan as as being too conservative. But I can't really think of another example of a candidate having done that before the convention, at least not in the modern era. Maybe he'll announce a VP candidate tomorrow. Well, we'll see, and we'll be here to cover it. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, let me circle back just a moment. A bunch of you had asked if I uh, if I had read uh, Larry Arn. You guys know who Larry Arn is. He's the president of Hillsdale College. Um, a lot of you had asked uh, if I had read his most recent piece in Imprimus, Education as a Battleground. Uh, Larry, Larry is a uniquely gifted uh, scholar. He uh, used to be the president of the Claremont Institute. I knew him when I was in Claremont, and he too was a student of Harry Jaffa's. He tells a beautiful story about why he went to graduate school in Claremont. He was, uh, he was an undergrad. And he read Harry Jaffa's book, Crisis of a House Divided, which was Jaffa's first popular book in the 50s about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And he was so uh, moved by that book, Larry Arne said, that um, he needed to go to Claremont to learn what this man knew. Isn't that a, isn't that a nice testimony to education and life of the mind? I'm gonna go to the, I want to go to study with that man so I can learn what he knows. Um, anyway, Larry, uh, in this month's Imprimus, has a um, has an essay based on a speech of his, Education as a Battleground. And I can understand why many of you had asked if I read it. It, it goes to many of the themes we talk about here. And certainly, I wasn't even thinking about it at the time, um, what my monologue was about uh, a little while ago. Uh, it, worth going through a little bit of it. Um, he writes about the change that has taken place uh, in education generally. Uh, and he says one way of describing the change in education today is that it provides a different answer than we have ever known to the question, who owns American children? Of course, no one actually owns the children. They are human beings, and insofar as they are owned, they own themselves. But by nature, they require a long time to grow up, much longer than most creatures, and someone must act on their behalf until they mature. Let me pause on that for a moment. You know, there were some hearings earlier today uh, in the uh, House of Representatives talking uh, with um, practitioners and psychologists and quote-unquote experts on transgender stuff and uh, transgender stuff in the schools. And one of these quote-unquote experts was talking about how, you know, they, they'll they'll work with uh, 12-year-olds uh, if they're interested in changing their sex, even over and against the parents' wishes. Um, and they made no bones about it. They had no shame or embarrassment about it. If the parent doesn't want them to, that the they they view it as their role. This group was based in Colorado. This expert was based in Colorado. She said that uh, no, we we have we have no compunction about doing it, even if the parents don't want to. It's to save these children. Really, really, these outside experts view it as their job to step between child and parent in doing one of the most life radically life altering things you can do to a child, changing their you know physiognomy and chemistry. And when I was thinking about that, I was uh, in the context of what Larry Arn is writing here, who owns these children and why is it he says children require um, more time to grow up than other creatures, than other animals? That's a really interesting point. I had not thought about that before. I don't know if you guys have thought about that before. Why do children require more time to grow up than other animals? 
And maybe it, it, it goes to the issue of what Aristotle said defines the human uh, distinctly from other animals, which is the ability to use language and re- uh, to reason. To reason. Other animals don't have, according to Aristotle, don't have the gift of reason. Reason can be um, can be can be invaded. It can be it can be adulterated. It can be warped. It can be corrupted as much as it can be nurtured, as much as it can be, and wealthened as much as it can be enhanced. And and I suppose that would be one reason that children require more time to grow up than other animals. More parental guidance, however, is what we are talking about. This is not yet a country where, like in Marxist, Leninists or Maoist Marxist societies, the state owns the children. This is not yet that country. This is still a country where the parents are the first and most important and indispensable owner and controller and guider of their own children. We haven't yielded that to the state just yet, though these attempts are fast moving to do that. I'll give you more of Larry on. I'm just speaking off the top of my head on this thought. I'm talk to Larry. Maybe we can get him on the show, too, and talk about it. But let me give you more of his essay when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Jeremy, why is my bumper music so much better when you're sitting in for Bill? I think I just have that touch, you know? Is that what it is? You and David working your magic there? Let me put in a word for our friends at the Midas Gold Group. Gold has been used as money for nearly 3,000 years, and today it still remains a common-sense investment that's simple and straightforward. You don't need a pushy commission salesperson to tell you why you should buy gold. You probably already want it. What you need is a reputable dealer with advice based on experience and a complete range of bullion and coins so you get what you want at the best value. That's the Midas Gold Group. Veteran-owned, proud supporters of this show, this station right here on 960 The Patriot, fighting for your right to the financial privacy and stability that gold offers. Trust the dealer that I, Sebastian Gorka, and thousands of you already know and trust, the Midas Gold Group. You can visit them in person at 625 West Deer Valley Road in Phoenix. Give them a call at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. Let me go back to uh, Larry Arn's essay here, which is uh, so relevant to the hearings I was seeing on the House uh, floor today. Um, Children, as he says, uh, by nature, they require a long time to grow up, much longer than most creatures. And someone must act on their behalf until they mature. Who is to do that? Not many people raise this question explicitly, but implicitly it is everywhere. For example, it is contained in the question, who gets to decide what children learn? It is contained more catastrophically in the question, who decides what we tell children about sex? Are these decisions the province of professional educators who claim to be experts? Or are they the province of parents who rely on common sense and love to guide them? In other words... Is the title to govern children established by expertise or by nature as exhibited in parenthood? The first is available to a professionally educated few. The second is available to any human being who will take the trouble. The natural answer to this question is contained in the way human beings come to be. 
Prior to recent scientific advances, every child has been the result of a natural process to which people have a natural attraction. Natural here does not mean what every single person wants or does. It means the way things work unless we humans intervene. In its essence, nature means the process of begetting and growth by which a mature living thing comes to be. It's actually interesting. If you look up the the etymology of nature, that's exactly what it is. It means generation, generate. Excuse me, not every, excuse me, not quite every human being is attracted to the natural process of human reproduction, but nearly all are. And when the process works to produce a baby, it works that way and no other way. This process of human reproduction growth works for two reasons. The first is that human beings, when mature, are capable of so much more than other creatures. Almost from birth, we learn to talk, a rational function that indicates decisive differences from other creatures because of reason and speech. We can be moral beings, that is to say, capable of distinguishing among the kinds of things that exist and therefore of knowing and doing right and wrong. Also because of them, we are social beings, able to understand and explain things to one another that other creatures do not understand and cannot really discuss. This draws us closer together than even herd or swarms of animals. We are unique in possessing these capacities, and it is in this specific respect that our nation's founders declared that all men are created equal. This equality has nothing to do with the color of anyone. Its source is the unique, immaterial, and rational soul of the human being. One of my teachers, he says, used to respond to the claims of animal rights advocates that one must not be cruel to any creature, but that only those who can talk are entitled to vote. The second reason in nature that makes human reproduction unique is our especially long period of maturation. For months, human babies are simply helpless. Without constant attention, they will starve. For years afterwards, they must develop the skills and knowledge that are uniquely available to the human being. But the skills and the knowledge are natural, meaning all human beings can obtain them, but both take time. Each child does the work of obtaining them, but each child needs help. Modern educators often mistake the work of helping them to learn for actually doing the learning for them. The second is impossible. The skills of reading and writing and arithmetic are direct exercises of our rational faculties. They are, in principle, the same thing as talking, and in principle, every child will learn much of them unassisted. Just watch your child grow up to the age of two. He or she begins very early to respond to things with comprehension. Words soon follow. Children copy adults for the use of words, but they're doing all the work of learning. Little wonder that human beings take a long time to mature. They have so much to learn. Raising a child has always been both difficult and and expensive. With rare exceptions, it has always been true that the parents who conceive the child raise him the best. And throughout American history, it has been thought that the family is the cradle of good citizenship and therefore of free and just politics. Public education is as old as our nation, but only lately has it adopted the purpose of supplanting the family and controlling parents. That's, he's right, a rather new thing. Who knew? Very few of us knew of the goings-on 
with the state or the public school trying to take on the job not just of the family or the parents but of supplanting the family of the parents when it came came to issues of their children with regard to understanding race or understanding their very own uh, genetics, their own sex. This was a wake-up call that most people didn't know exi- was taking place until until 2020 when the schools were closed from COVID and parents were seeing firsthand what some of the stuff, some of the crud that was going on in the schools was taking place. And I still maintain it's an awfully interesting thing where we moved from a case of teachers for years saying they were asked to do too much of the family work at home, you know? They were asked to do too much of the discipline work in the school, too much of the work of parents who weren't doing the job that they should be doing at home, to now wanting to take over almost all the most important jobs of the parents in too many of these curriculum and too many of these schools and too many of these experts' views of what the school should be for. Give you a final thought on that and we'll come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. If you're worried about the stock market's volatility, our friends at Y-Refi have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market. A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It's an investment in a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10.25%. A due diligence approved firm, you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. If what Larry Arn is writing and what I'm talking about sound come to you with whiffs of familiarity to other regimes, uh, you're right. Regimes where the state is the parent. Stalinist regimes, Maoist regimes, Castro regimes. I remind people that when little Elian Gonzalez was sent back to Cuba, he spoke about when he was interviewed there, his dad, Fidel, his dad, Fidel. Um, Larry Arn puts it pretty squarely, too. He says, one can look in history and literature to see the danger of where the idea of supplanting the family might lead. Study the education practices that existed in the USSR and Nazi Germany and that exist today in communist China or read the terrifying account in Orwell's 1984. They tell us that children, by distorting their natural desire to grow up and end their dependence, can be recruited to the purposes of despotic regimes, even to the extent of denouncing their parents to the state. And we have statues in the Soviet Union or in the former Soviet Union in Russia to children who were seen as heroes for turning their children in to the state. Larry says, we don't have this in America yet, but we do have children being turned against their country by being indoctrinated to look on its past, which all parents, of course, are in some way apart, as a shameful time of irredeemable injustice. We also increasingly have children being encouraged to speak of their sexual proclivities in an age when they can hardly Think of them, and now we are also living in an age where the schools feel it is their duty over and against the parents' wishes to help them change that, which is a 
macabre new view of scientism and education and what I think we should call regressivism is. Okay, this was heavy stuff. Um, We'll lighten it up just a little bit, but no less intellectually with the great Dr. Tebby Troy when we come right back. 